This is Speaking Z Theology with Chris Green. Hey Zoe, how are you today? Doing well, how are you? I'm doing very well, but you're doing better than well. I mean, you're coming out of a, a triumph, right? You just had a super cool experience. That's true. I learned that from mom though. When we go in the stores and someone's like, how are you doing? And we walk in together. We both like simultaneously like creepy twins go, doing well, how are you? But in the exact same tone and everything. And I'm like, oh, so that's just my response. It's mom's fault. But I am doing really good, actually. Good, good, good. You look wonderful. You sound good. Thank you. So what we're going to do today is talk about Genesis 3. And do you want to set the background here or do you want me to set it? I think <laughs> my background is going to be funnier than your background. Like, I think what happened was I was on TikTok and someone okay, yes, like, it's already up funnier. Say, it's already, yeah, funnier. someone swiped up trying to be like, trying to say um, something about how this story is basically like against women. And I wasn't even really listening. I just remember thinking, okay, well, not that, but also I don't know enough to really know why that's wrong. So let me read this because wait a minute, because it was basically just something like women are seductress and they are also like easily corruptible. And it was just going on something about that. And I was like, okay. And then I thought, okay, maybe I should read this. And then you sent it to me and you're like, cause you were like, it's much weirder than you actually think. And I was like, okay, I was just looking for a quick answer. You made me read it, but then I was glad that I actually did read it. Sweet. No, that's a perfect introduction. So let's, well, I'll say I'll say this before we jump in. I, as I told you, I think the scripture, I, I, all literature, including scripture, is if it's worthy of that name, it's always stranger, more promising, more troubling than we expect. Right? That there's there's more going on than any kind of quick dismissive comment can catch up to, and I think that's. Of course, uniquely true of scripture in some ways, but it's true of anything that deserves the name literature. It's true of poetry or music or, or anything that's artful. And here we're talking specifically about texts that can be read. So I, I think, and I, I love that you have this already, but I wish all of us had a kind of almost like a an allergy to dismissive comments like that about any text, not just Christian scripture or Jewish scripture, but about poetry or, I mean, it's, it's similar just to take a non-religious example, the way in which people in my world, when I was your age, the ways in which they dismiss rap as not really art, you know, and there was this, you know, arrogant dismissiveness that I think is always a tell that you're not paying attention, whatever, whatever you happen to be talking about. So thanks for, thanks for engaging. Okay. Genesis three. You want to you want to read it? You want me to read it? How do you want to start with that? Yeah, I'll read it because I like I basically was going to like underline everything I had questions for for you, but then I just basically like underlined the whole piece. And then with how weird it was, I was like probably the things I didn't underline is what I have even more questions on because I didn't even understand it enough to be like, "Oh, that was weird." <laughs> so, I'll I'll read it if that's okay. Yes, please. Um so it starts with now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. Do you want me to like throw my questions in as they come? Or you want me to read the whole thing? And no, then come throw, back? throw them in as you go. I'd, I'd like to hear them as you go. Cause the thing I noticed in this was the serpent was more subtle. Mm-hmm. I noticed the word subtle mm-hmm. um, than any other wild creature. So non-wild creatures aren't more, are not, wait, the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature, but not more subtle than non-wild creatures. Well, maybe, maybe, except, I mean, I think part of what the text is inviting us to think about there is, are there any domesticated creatures at this point? Mm. Or, or are all creatures wild? And the word you've underlined there, subtle, it, it's also translated crafty. It's craftier. Mm. It can also be translated like clever. Uh, what I like about subtle, what I like about that word in particular is that it, it shows that it's not because crafty suggests something more sinister. Yeah. I was going to say, I like the word subtle because it doesn't come off as negative at first, like a negative connotation to it. Yes, exactly. And, and you're not supposed to think, I mean, those of us who've been churched come to this passage thinking, Oh, this is a story about the devil and how the devil tempted Adam and Eve into sinning. But that's not the way the story is told. The way the story is told is just there's a creature 
And it's that creature, the subtlest of all the creatures, that deceives. So, like, there's there's no reference to Satan here right now. Like, later tradition yeah. will see that. And we, we can talk about theologically the soundness of that connection. But the text itself doesn't call the serpent. The no, because the ending is that any creature that the Lord had made. So it's also exactly. saying like it's like being like like human that was created by God in this for this That's space. Right. That's exactly right. Um, and so notice how, I mean, before you keep going, notice how it doesn't explain to us why the serpent wants to ask these questions. It doesn't explain to us why God made the serpent, serpent so clever. It just right. starts with this serpent did this. It also assumes that there's just kind of a serpent, not not a pair of serpents, not a like one of many kinds. It's just there is a serpent, which is why some people think we're talking here about a creature we don't know. Like we we think this is a snake, but why is it talking in these ways about whatever this creature is? Right? So that that's some yeah. what leads to the speculation about how this is related to Lucifer, the the archangel. I mean, there's there's a reason people get to those other texts, but for now. Just notice kind of what the text is not doing. It's not explaining where this question came from or why the serpent is asking it, but it is a creature asking it of the woman. Yeah. Um, The next line is, he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree. We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's another interesting line that we'll get to, like, in the thing that I noticed is, like, if you do, you'll die. Yeah. Um, but the serpent said, said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was delighted to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave. She also gave some to her husband, and he ate. One thing that I did notice too, like why is the creature like the creature's subtle, and God made it that way? Why would God make the tree delighted to delight to the eyes? Yeah, right. Or like desired to be, or to be desired. Um, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Mm. So, Do you have any comments? Oh man. Yeah. So, so much. I mean, first, and you and I discussed this a few days ago, but the first is I, I'm persuaded that this story, like the story of Job and like a, a few other stories in scripture, it's, it works like a puzzle. It's, it's designed an unsolvable puzzle. It, as I told you, that you think of it like a Rubik's cube that cannot quite be solved. There's always one square at least that just cannot be matched up. Not because there's some kind of flaw, but because it's so perfectly designed to force you to have to come back to it over and over again, to come back to the story and consider it again. So you, you know, we'll work through it right now. But when we get done, there will still be questions. Well, if that's true, then why this? If that's true, then right. that. So I, I think le- letting this story do what it wants to do is to let it, and again, I think this is much like Job, the story of Job, is to kind of let it work on us so that we are provoked to questions and provoked to discussion again and again and again and again. This is this is why I think Jesus talks in parables. There, there are ways, and that's not the only way that he talks, but that's in, in a sense the heart of the way that he talks. Because it's a... It's provoking a way of, of reading and attending. It's meant to stir up reflection and conversation and even disagreement. So I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that up front. You'd mentioned that, don't let me put words in your mouth, but that the original kind of instigation for you was seeing someone online, TikTok was it, saying this story was kind of anti-woman. Yeah, or that it seemed like if you simplified it to like 
you know, there was some corruption. She knew what was going to happen if she did it. She did it anyways in a greedy kind of way. Susceptible. What, like the woman is the easily susceptible one. Yeah, and then she's also easily susceptible, but then also the one who perpetrates and like brings others to evil. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 For sure. Well, I mean, obviously that's wrong, but if we if we pay attention to the text, I think the suggestion is that the woman is the next subtlest creature to the serpent. So if the serpent is more subtle than any other creature, there's a reason he singles her out. And you could say he singles her out because she's weak. But actually in the story, Adam is the one that the, the man, the male, comes off as weak. He, first of all, he doesn't say much. And what he does say is bad. <laughs> like he, he's the one who's accusatory. You know, it's yeah. a woman's fault. Right. There's a, You're getting ahead of yourself. I had a joke lined up for that. Oh, sorry. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back. We'll come back to it. But I, I think, you know, Adam is the, again, the male here. They're both Adam in a sense. But the male here is less subtle than the female. And both are less subtle than the serpent, I think. But she's very obviously clever. I mean, if you notice the the way the text runs, he asks her this question and she says, you know, we may eat of the fruit, but God has said, we're not to eat of it. We're not even supposed to touch it or we will die. Now, many people point out that that's not exactly what was said earlier. So is she misunderstanding or has she understood something that was implied? I mean, again, the, the story is trying to provoke us to ask, is she adding to what was said in the beginning? Or did she understand clearly that there's there's not to be a touching? And of course, that if, if it's either way, if, if she's not supposed to touch it, why is she where she is? Now, we often assume that when the story starts the woman is already at the tree. So like, if you listen to the way people tell this story, they'll often tell it like she's already gone to the tree and is lusting after it. And the serpent is like, so in art, even kind of, mm-hmm. you know, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Even in kind of kitschy art, the serpent will be in the tree, but in but, the tree, yeah, like literally in the tree. So that it leaves the impression that she's kind of already where she shouldn't be. But the story doesn't say that. It just simply says that the woman, when she sees that the tree is good for food. So it could be narratively that this conversation with the serpent leads her to go to the tree. Yeah. And it's interesting because you said like the serpent is the most subtle creature and you thought it was important that that word subtle isn't negative. Because also if you're making the claim that the woman is the next most subtle creature. Mm Mm-hmm. That, that those instincts in the woman isn't a negative instinct necessarily right. yeah. either, but it does make her susceptible to this. Yeah, but what makes her susceptible is kind of what is also her glory. Like it, it's precisely that she is so clever and wise, and at least desirous of being wise, that puts her at risk. I mean, so if you if you look at the description, she sees that the tree is good for food. And the way the story is told, it doesn't say she wrongly thought the tree was good for food. It says that she saw it was fact good for food. So why would God make something that's good for food that they're not supposed to eat? And something beautiful that they're not supposed to eat. Not only good, but beautiful. Right, exactly. It's a delight to the eyes. And not only good in the sense that it's good to eat, but it's good in that it makes you wise. Right, so it, it it actually wisens you up in some way, and it's to be desired to make one wise. So not yeah. only is it good to eat, not only is it good to make you wise, not only is it beautiful and delightful, it's meant to be desired. And this this to me is where we get to the real subtlety of the story. It's a tree that is good and beautiful. And it's supposed to be desired, but not eaten of. Like, so if we just mm. if we trust the narrator and we, we trust that God has indeed said, don't eat of it, 
but we also trust these descriptions that it's beautiful, that it's good. Do you see what I'm saying though? Like that yeah. it's to be desired. And why the, the question it's forcing for us is why would God make something that's good and desirable and meant to be desired? And yet we're told not, or at least these two are told not to eat of it. And the serpent is playing on that tension or that ambiguity. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to keep reading. Yeah. Oh, can I say this? And they heard. Can I, can I, can I say oh, this? Yeah. Here you go. Like, I don't think it helps to belittle either Adam or Eve, the male or the female. But it is very clear to me in the story that Adam is the one who's who understands least what's happening, right? So the way that this plays out, she took the fruit, she ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So there's a way in which she is, I don't know if the word is leading or not, but so if you're, if you're trying to make this as negative as possible, like the woman as seductress or temptress who's kind of leading him into evil, like that's, that's one way of reading it. But it's also that she's helping him navigate the reality, you know, that she's a guide for him. And because mm-hmm. she's been misguided, she misguides him. But I, I don't, I don't think we should jump to the conclusion that she's somehow sinister or that there's a, a way in which he should have told her to get in her place or something. Uh, It's hard for us to read these texts well because of how the kind of patriarchy that has shaped our imagination, right? The the kind of sexism, the misogyny, all all that, everything that that kind of sets the limits or the boundaries for male-female relationships in our culture I think that warps our imaginations in ways that make it hard for us to read this text on its own terms. But notice it's not saying any of those things. Yeah. Um, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who thou gavest to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent. So that was the funny thing that freaking Adam says later. He's like, the woman who thou gavest to me. <laughs> he's like, um, by the way, this is low-key your fault. You brought her here. So, um, and then also I really like am intrigued by the line, who told you that you were naked? Because now this starts to bring in, like you were saying, like, do we trust the narrator? narrator? What do we trust is going on here? Right. Yeah. Cause they've eaten. And she says, Eve says, God says, if we eat, we will die. The serpent says, you will not die. They eat. So far, they haven't died. You know what I'm saying? In in our terms of what is death. So either God meant something different by death when he said it. Um, or why, like, why are they, you know, not dying? And then it says, like, they ate and their eyes were open because the serpent said, this will open your eyes and you will know good and evil. So if that's true and now their eyes are opened and they know good and evil, is it that they're actually naked and they know it now? Or is it that like they're deceived into thinking they're naked? Because God doesn't say, oh, you figured it out. Like, yeah. you know, yes. that's unfortunate. He's like, who who even told you that? Yes. Um, and immediately knows by them like thinking that, that they ate from the tree. So it's like, do they actually know it? Is it actually true that they're naked mm-hmm. or does it seem like they do they think they know something now that's a lie? That's right. Um, part of part of that that thread, if you pull it, part of this this brings us to that kind of irresolvable puzzle that I'm talking about. Because the narrator says that they knew that they were naked. But first of all, we don't know 
what that means. Like that, why, why are they ashamed of it? Like, why is it that they know they are naked? Why do they sew fig leaves? Why do they make loincloths for themselves? Like, what is it? And of course, that's why it's provoked all kinds of, I don't know what the right word for it is, but highly speculative readings, trying to figure out what's really going on here that would make them sensitive to their nakedness. Yeah, like make them think that's a negative or something that needs to change. Yeah, they're not just that they're naked, they're ashamed that there's some sense of of shame that's sexual because they immediately cover their what you know what we call their their private parts like that there's something about human sexuality that's being named here and as i as i talked to you before you you well we'll, we'll probably get to it later when we get to the point about childbirth and pain but we've yeah. got to realize that the power of this story is a power that's meant to work on what we already have experienced. It's not like a right. we cannot read this story well as an explanation of how things happened. It's an exploration of what has happened in us and of what is happening in us. It's not right. So the author might be wondering, why do we feel ashamed? Why do we cover? And what's interesting about that is in our globalized society, we know that everyone doesn't feel that way. So the author who was writing this, had gotten the impression that people are ashamed Maybe. and that we cover up. Maybe. I mean, but I, not, not every culture in the world has always not been naked. You know what I'm saying? Like there are other cultures where. Yeah. And I don't, I, I mean, we want to be careful about making assumptions about what the author did and didn't think. I mean, I hear your point and certainly there are differences time to time and place to place. We can't, universalize here. But I, I, I mean, I think it's generally, it's a good rule of thumb. Assume that the author, the narrator, which those are different things, right? There's the narrator that some author has written. So mm-hmm. the author can know things. The narrator does not just like the, the narrator can tell, talk to us about characters that don't know what the narrator knows. The narrator might know less than what the author knows or, or in a sense, no more. So when you say the author thought, I wouldn't, don't jump to that yet, right? Like we, we don't okay. quite know. And, and that's even before we get to the question of how does God author these things? Like the, we're just talking now at, at the literary level that this is, there may be a lot more going on in the author than even the narrator understands. And certainly there's a lot more going on with the narrator than the characters understand. So as readers, we're going to read best if we assume that the author is at least as smart as we are. (laughs) Nothing good is going to come if we come at any of these texts like we're smarter than it. But you don't think that the author was was navigating under an impression where nakedness was shameful? I'm I'm not saying he or they or she wasn't. I'm saying we... We can't jump too quickly to that. I'm just putting a caution there. I'm not saying that. I, I think quite clearly this story wants to explore shame and specifically shame around nakedness, specifically shame around male, female sexuality and nakedness. Okay. So I, I, that I think is clear. What I don't think is clear is what's the, what's the larger picture about nakedness? In other words, I don't think that this text came from a purity culture or it didn't come from the kind of culture that, you know, I knew as a kid, it's not that because in the world I knew, and here's how I know that in the world I lived in as a kid, the so-called purity culture, we couldn't tell stories like this. We we didn't have the subtlety and we didn't have the the honesty about the sexuality. Like there was hiddenness, but there was no storytelling about hiddenness, and certainly no clever, artful storytelling about hiddenness and shame. We we were ashamed, but we didn't know we were, and we were so ashamed we couldn't have even talked about it. So whoever writes this has to be pretty free of shame in order to recognize it as something that needs to be confronted and discussed and yeah, does that make sense? Like you've got to have, yeah, you've got to have some 
I mean, we would put it, you got to be pretty liberated to have this kind of story about sexuality and shame and the being deceived and all of that. Right. I mean, it, this is not something that's possible for a culture that's ashamed of sexuality. Okay. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Again, I thought that line was funny. I'm sure there's a reason maybe you could explain of cattle, but when it was like, cursed are you above all cattle, I was like, dang, why the cattle cursed? They didn't do anything. <laughs> um, upon, upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. That line comes interesting later. All the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Weird thing to say, unless you mean like you're their children. Um, and he shall bruise your, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel to the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing in your pain. You shall bring forth children yet. Your desire shall be for your husband. This one also is where I text you. I'm like, and again, later in the poem, you hear the like punishment for the man is to like eat bread. I'm like, why am I getting a painful childbearing and you just have to eat bread? I love eating bread. That is really not that bad. And um, I also found it weird that he, that the author says, yet your desire will be, shall be for your husband. Like, okay, you'll bring forth children in the world, but you won't really care about them. You'll just care about your husband or what is that implying? Mm -hmm. And, um, and then it says, and he shall rule over you. I was like, Oh, yeah. So, um, well, so because much, you have listened before you, keep oh. reading, before you keep reading, it's like so much to talk about here. I mean, some of this is how we translate and, and these are essentially like formulas, almost like poems like or stanzas in a poem are liturgical. When I say formulas, I mean like liturgical statements, like they're, they're highly, highly poetic and, very carefully crafted and read, read your translation again, which I think you're reading the RSV because you have done this cursed are you yeah. among all cattle. Is that, is that right? Because you have done this cursed are you above all cattle above. Okay. So like the NRSV has among all animals. So above oh. suggests they're all cursed among suggests it is cursed among the animals that are not. Like other animals regard you as cursed too. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the question, and that's almost certainly a better translation, but it's a reminder that, you know, when we're reading these stories and we're leaning into a particular word, if we don't, if we're not grappling with original languages, and even if we are, honestly, in this case, Hebrew, we need to have a sense of what remains possible, right? So could, could that line be read cursed among other animals? And regardless, I think one thing to keep in mind here is in what one aspect of the story is this is a people who obviously live with a, and I think all human beings do. I, I shouldn't say, I, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I did read a paper once that argued that the that human sight is evolutionarily developed to recognize snakes that like part of our reason our vision works the way it is is that over the course of evolution we had to be able to recognize snakes that were hiding and this is one of the reasons that many of us have the experience of seeing things that look like a snake that turn out to be something else and how common that is like where you will see something to think oh that's a snake but it's not, and you'll you'll you're kind of going to freeze mode. Yeah, I, I mean, I read one paper, so take it for what it's worth. But that's interesting to me. I, I think there's a chance that the writer is is taking that experience of the hatred for the snake, and and taking the experience of shame, and taking the very obvious ways in which snakes take on like sexual image. And working those together into a way of exploring how is it that human beings came to lose their dignity, came to lose, or at least the form yeah. of their dignity. 
Do you think that you did say a thing about the way snake is related to like sexuality? Do you think that 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 was possibly a thing? That was something I would have assumed was more modern. Like I wouldn't. I don't. No, no, no. I don't know enough to think that. I just would have assumed it. No, I think that's. I think that's that. It's very clearly. I mean, we see it in the Enuma Elish. We see it in other ancient texts. Like they're okay. again not in just some kind of like stupid, you know, high school boy understanding of sim- symbols, but I mean, in, in more subtle ways as well. Now I do think probably I'd haven't re- researched this, so I don't know. My guess would be interpreting snakes as sexual in dreams is probably a post Freudian assumption. So a relatively modern one and relatively Western one, but certainly we see all over the ancient world identification between serpents and sexuality. That's not the only okay. identification, but that is one. Yeah. Um, and again, I think there, there's a whole range of reasons. There, there must be endless dimensions to that that I haven't considered yet. But some are obvious and some are not so obvious. Regardless, like the writer is working with that at some level like, and working with common experiences, fear of the serpent. And, and again, remember, these are people, they don't, they don't, live you know in high-rise apartments and i mean they live in a world in which you know the the presence of serpents i mean it it's built into their everyday experience you know like this is not yeah everyone has has this enmity that he names so like it's striking the man says the woman that you gave me she gave me fruit and i ate and that's true. So there's a way of hearing that as just straightforward description. The man is saying, the woman gave it to me and I ate. It does strike us though, like, it, it does strike us though, like uh, accusation. I, that's it, at least how I hear it. I think you did too. It's the woman's fault. The woman you gave me. It's her fault. Then she says, when, when God says, what is, what is it you've done? The woman says, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. And for whatever reason, that, again, might just be straightforward description. It might be accusation. The serpent you made. But because she doesn't say the serpent you made, she simply says, the serpent tricked me. And so yeah. this- It's also interesting that you, you um, pointed out what the serpent begot me, too, and what we were talking about, like, okay, they didn't die were their eyes actually opened? So is she seeing that? She's seeing like, oh, this is a lie. And um, God was right. Something in me died. Or, because that's interesting, right? A different perspective of the woman is like, it doesn't feel as blamey. Like, what if she's actually seeing something? Like, what if her subtleness is being like, oh, that was like wrong? Because otherwise, it's like, did he really trick you? If he told you you wouldn't die and your eyes would be open and you ate and that's what happened, did he really deceive you or did you just like? That's right. And this is one of the reasons I, I connect it to the story of Job, because Job's friends keep telling Job, if you'll just, you wouldn't be in this situation if you hadn't sinned. And if you would repent, your situation would turn around. And then at the end of Job, Job keeps saying all the way through the story, he hasn't sinned. And at the end, God says, Job has not sinned. But Job still repents. And when Job repents, his life turns around. So the God God says outright, Job did not sin, and the and he says that the friends were wrong. You did not speak rightly about me, as my servant Job did. So they seem to be wrong. I mean, they, they don't seem to be wrong. They are wrong, but they seem to be right. Because what they say to Job is, this wouldn't be happening if you weren't sinning. If you repented, your life would change. He repents, and his life seems to change. So I think what we're dealing with here with the serpent is something that he doesn't seem to be wrong, but he must be. He must be wrong because it is a deception. And so when she says the serpent tricked me, she has to be right. now. But now we're back to that unsolvable problem. Does she know the serpent has tricked her because she has been made wiser by eating the fruit she should not have eaten? Right? Is oh. you see what I mean? Like the ways in which yeah, the she knows she wasn't wise enough to recognize the trick before it happened. 
So now she knows. But now she knows she's been tricked. Yeah. And so th- that. That's yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to. I wasn't going to say anything. I just thought it was interesting. So then notice what the Lord does. The Lord speaks to the serpent and puts the curse on him. Like, you cursed are you above, <laughs> or above all the animals. And then he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours, between her seed and yours. And again, we're back to the sexuality. And it's why in the worst readings of this passage, people have even speculated that the serpent here is this demonic figure with whom set Eve has had sex. So, I mean, we won't even get into whole, I don't even, I wish. <laughs> Who's that? Have you seen the new like Marvel movie where they like pull out this scene to try to like appreciate fan fiction or something? And it's like this singing world where like everyone's dressed up and every like the language that they speak is singing. And they were like, How deep into fan fiction do you have to get before this this world comes up? That's what you just reminded me of. It's like, how crazy into Christian culture do you have to keep digging till you find the person who's like You've had sick with that snake for sure. Yeah, it's so, so unnerving. Uh, I don't even want to keep talking about it because it, it sickens me. But I, I do want to point out God speaks to the serpent and curses him. So in a way, this is confirmation that the wrongdoing lies with the serpent first and foremost. Yeah. You have done this. And because you've done this, you're going to be cursed and there's going to be enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. And ultimately, her offspring is going to strike your head. Meaning, again, he's working, the the writer is working from a place of the experience of killing snakes and what that feeling is and then of course all that that can represent and all that it kind of entails pun intended but this is of course read also as a a promise of salvation in the broadest way that now this serpent is representative of all evil and this evil is set first and foremost against the woman and her children. And this, I think this is really important. If we can get away from the patriarchal reading, that what's being said is the serpent is the wrongdoer here. That there's something in creation that has worked against human beings. And that's what's cursed. Now, some people have read that as human sexuality that it's human lust or human desire, that is the thing that has turned against human beings. And that's what's cursed. But I don't, I don't think it's that. I think it's whatever is most subtle about human being and human interaction. Like, in a sense, us at our most glorious or our most powerful, that's where the real damage is. That's where the real risk is and it shows itself by it's the destruction it brings to women and children to in some ways to the to the most vulnerable but in other ways to the place where life is happening Mm. but it also testifies to the fact that the that human beings at their most vulnerable and life-giving at the place where we're most in touch with our togetherness with our need for each other where we're most tender again where we're most vulnerable and life-giving it's at the, the enmity the enmity we feel at that point for evil is a sign of the goodness that's at work in us that i i think when people are most tender, most truly kind of in touch with the pain of their neighbor, with the good that they want for their neighbor, that's when we see evil most clearly. And I think that's part of the promise here too. Not just that evil tries to devour humanity and humanity's life-giving power, but that when we are most in touch with that life-giving power, we're, we are 
in a sense, womanly, most womanly. We're, we're closest to that place where subtlety, weakness, and fruitfulness are all one. Am I making sense or am I getting too weird? No, there was something I wanted you to elaborate on, but then I got in the train of thought that I was into, you went on to a different, like you kind of switched what you were talking about. But I, the two things that I wanted to bring up when the first part you were talking about made me think of, maybe it's not actually, you know, if subtleness isn't wrong in the woman, maybe it wasn't, maybe the subtleness wasn't what was wrong with the serpent either. I, I almost wonder like, oh, I think cause right. you said something about the way that maybe it's like when humans are at like this point of, how did you phrase it? Like that when we're at this point of power or something that that's yeah, I think, I think it's like, where I, th I think what's happening with Eve in this story is there's subtlety, like, like intelligence, although that word doesn't quite do justice. There's subtlety, there's weakness because she's vulnerable. She can be tricked. She is tricked. And in some ways she's the, what, what in the King James is called the weaker vessel, like the, the way in which the, the woman is taken from the man, like in the Genesis narrative, she's kind of taken from his rib and she's fashioned differently than the male is in this, in this particular narrative. And so there's, there's a kind of weakness, but intimacy. So there's a, there's a frailty to her body, but a kind of subtlety to her mind and spirit that's closely tied up with her intimacy with the man she's made from his side, from his body, parts of his body are taken and made into hers, but then all other bodies are from her. She's the mother of all living. Like, so everything else is, so it's the life giving. So here, mm -hmm. again, if we're thinking about this in just kind of stupidly historicist sense, like this is a story about the first man and the first woman and how sin can, I mean, we miss all of the depth and complexity of the way the story is being told and, and why it's mm -hmm. being told. So that's, that's what I was trying to get at. I think she here, she represents all human beings, male and female. It, she represents all of mm -hmm. us at the place where we are most subtle, most vulnerable and capable of, of giving life. What, what I thought might be being implied too is okay, maybe the serpent's subtleness isn't bad. You know, there's clearly this is about evil and that's an evil. Yeah. And the woman's subtleness isn't bad, but to, together something bad like is created. So that's why that, that's not like that's why like one can't they can't that would be an answer to why they could both be created, why they're both subtle, why subtlety and cleverness is like. Um, God's gift, but why he separates them that's, and their children. I think is, he's I think saying, maybe it's like saying like, you know, these are good traits mm -hmm. that you need to keep, but when you bring them, when y'all get together, they don't mix good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I also had a thing, because you were saying something about maybe the woman's body being more frail because it was taken from the male's body. And it made me think of my friend who's well, a no, dancer. No, I'm not saying it's more frail because it was taken. I'm saying that, like, again, assume this writer is is working with experiences of shame, experiences of the serpent, experiences also of the ways in which the female body is perceived as, and, and in some ways is, weaker than the males, just in the kind of brute sense. That I think I think he's kind of starting with those experiences among others and working back to what do they mean. So what's being what's significant about this this particular Eve is that she's taken from Adam. That's not what makes her weaker. That's what makes her flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, right? But she her intimacy with him, even though she seems to have a subtler mind and spirit. That's standing over against the fact that her body is less brut brutally strong or something. Yeah, maybe. I think like something that complicates that in, in the way you even talked about taking from the side is a friend of mine who was a dancer was talking to me about, you know, her her professor kind of wanted to talk about 
the difference in female and male bodies. And as dancers, they, one of the conclusions they came to is that like the woman's like center of gravity is in the midsection, which is part of what, so they're like low, their center of gravity, their center of gravity is lower. Their strength comes from lower and that makes the, their ability to move and hold stable movements and like flexibility. And like, also like these, these abilities to hold certain positions mm. that men can't hold because their center of gravity is in like the middle versus men's center of gravity according to this professor is in like their upper body, which is why they can spin faster, why they could like push harder and that they would have them do similar movements, but they would have a man do it and he would like push all arms and they'd have a woman do it. And she kind of like push from like the middle of her mm. um, and a couple other jumps and things. And then they would just have, so then she, the professor would have all the men line up in a room and do certain movements, like really explosive type movements and then have all the women watch and then she would have women do these like movements that men, you know, struggled more to do and have all the like men watch. And I just think that's interesting. And, and it seems to bring an interesting thing here because one thing that I noticed is like in this case, women's center of gravity is lower to the ground. Mm-hmm. So, like a big part of the like men's center of gravity being higher is they're like bouncier. They're like more like up here. Yeah. So they're bouncing, they're spinning. They're like, li- they're actually like lighter. You know what I'm saying? Like they have a brute force to them, but they're almost like yeah. So this this less is super helpful. This is super helpful because it's it's a reminder that something like strength changes not just person to person, but even across the genders, even generalizations across gender and sex change depending on what we're discussing. Right? If we're discussing, this is a great example of it. And and again, I would assume. I think we always should assume the author of this text is almost certainly more in touch with that than any of us are as readers. Just assume that the author, especially when we're talking about scripture, because we're talking about God superintending and inspiring the entire process. So if, if we're talking about it, obviously there's a knowledge at work here that we're never going to catch up to fully. So I think that that's a really helpful Point. I, I wanted to say one more thing before we move past this. So God addresses the serpent, then the woman, and then the man. And the... Well, we haven't read that part yet. Okay, go, go, go. Do you want me to read it first or did you want to say it? No, you... I just know you probably have it all memorized, so I don't know if you got to... If you knew we hadn't read it. Yeah, yeah I didn't know. I, I didn't realize we hadn't read that far, but go ahead. Okay. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of, or you shall not of it. You know, you shall not eat of it. There we go. Um, Cursed is the ground because of you in toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the plants of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground of it. You are taken. You are dust and to dust. You shall return. Okay. What were your thoughts? Okay. So what I'm advocating for again, remember what I said at the very beginning of this conversation, I think this is an unsolvable puzzle, but it doesn't mean that there aren't better and worse readings. There definitely are better readings and, and worse ones, but no matter what we say, there's always going to be more to say because there's something that, we can't quite account for that. That said, notice this writer and of course the narrator, they know fully well that all human beings, whether they're male or female return to dust. Right. But in this storytelling, it's the man in this story, as it's told, it's the man who's from dust and the woman is from the man. Does that make sense? Like, so in this story, these, these two are unlike any of us. We're all like the man in the story. So males and females now, from the time of that writing, from the time of the story, obviously everywhere, we all are returning to dust. Okay? But notice, notice if you, if you put these three statements, the statement to the serpent, the statement to the woman, and the statement to the man, side by side. Notice the where they end. 
like where they, um, like what they leap to. So with the serpent, the end is his head is going to be crushed. Right. Mm-hmm. He did wrong. He's going to be crushed for it. Mm-hmm. The man ends in the dust. Like you return to the dust. You see that? Mm-hmm. Right? You're going to return to the ground. You you become the ground itself. So the the serpent is crushed and killed. The man is returned to the earth. But notice what happens to the woman. Where does she end up? Not crushed and not dust, but under the authority of the man. So she gets this kind of middle, just like her statement is in the middle, her condition is in the middle in some ways. What I'm suggesting is that this is not a story about the place of all women everywhere. It's a statement about a certain kind of humanity that all of us share. Just like I think the statement about the male is a statement about all people everywhere. So when we're talking here about male, female, we're not talking about this is true of women and this is true of men. We're saying both of these things are true of all human beings, that the the maleness and the femaleness is true of all human beings. And it's which is what, what do you mean by trappedness in between? No, I don't mean she's trapped in between. I mean, it's is as if like her, the statement about her fits between the crushing and the, the dying. Like that, her life is lived in in this with her desire for her husband, who's ruling over her. So now, if you hear that, and many, many, many people have heard this as a kind of prescription for the ways males and females should relate, I think it first of all it doesn't make sense in terms of what the text is actually doing for lots of reasons. I'll, I'll give a few examples in a moment. But I think it misses what's actually happening in this story. This is not just kind of general statement about all women everywhere. It's talking specifically about this this Eve. She's the mother of all living. And what's being said here applies, I'm arguing, it applies to all human beings. So Eve, there's Eve in me and there's Eve in you. And there's Eve in your mom and there's Eve in my dad. And there's Adam in me and Adam in you. And there's the serpent in me and the serpent in you and the serpent in my dad and in your mom. And these are all creaturely realities that we participate in. It's our capacity to bring our eveness into the right kind of wisdom that is crucial. And, and in that way, our Adamness too. Like, so the, the Eve and the Adam in us are rightly related. Like that's the, that's the key. That's what we're looking for. And that shows itself in enmity with the serpent in enmity with that, with the use of our subtlety, in ways that defy the wisdom of God or try to undermine it. I know we're in deep waters, but I really, I really do think you got to feel some of the other possibilities here in terms of reading this, not you personally, but like, I think, I think we're, you know, a, a million miles from this being a text about the evils of womanhood. Yeah. So I see what you're saying about this applying. It's not about women knowing their place, but what does it mean for a person to be under Adam? Um, oh, I, like why is that a place at all? What human condition is that an exemplifying? I, I think a few different things. Some of it is the ways in which. Uh, so let, let me just just give one kind of one possible example. If Eve represents the creative and imaginative and appetitive parts of me, the parts of me that that recognize that things are good that they are to be desired and that they will make me wise and that goes and gets them. If it's the part of me that's capable of kind of dialoguing with the most subtle realities, but it's also therefore the part of me that's temptable, temptable. I have to have something in me that says no to that. 
I have to be willing to say, I know it's desirable. I know it would make, you know, make me more powerful, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to have self-control, right? I'm going to be able to say to myself, no, I'm not doing that. I mean, it's, if we, if we jump to the story of Jesus, this is what he's doing in the wilderness, in the temptations. No, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And ironically, right, like before, if the woman was seen to be weak and the man was like the genius, amazing one, like what's actually going on there then is like if the woman represents the will for power or, you know, intelligence, wisdom, all like if she's representing these really strong character traits, it's almost like you need the more innocent, almost like dumb, not dumber, but almost dumber part of you to say no to that. So it's like you need to be under someone who's almost less than you. That's right. So that those bigger parts of you don't take hold of you. That's right. And and I want to just keep reiterating. We're talking about these characters, even Adam, not males and females everywhere. We're not saying that to be a female is to, is to be subtler, but needing to be subjected to the male. Because I don't, I don't think that this story is meant to be read as, Women are superior, but they need men as their inferiors to dominate them. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is within my humanity, I must yeah. find a way for my Adamness and my Eveness to rightly relate. And right. the, the this and is sometimes not- I'll have to kind of let go of my Eveness, like let it be. I'll have to tell it no sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. So, and one, just one example to kind of, we could talk about this forever, but just one example is when, when God speaks to the man, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles. Right? So there's one way of hearing this as, and I mean, I've heard people preach this, that as a husband, he shouldn't have listened to his wife. He, she, she should have listened to him. Right. That, that what God is saying is Adam, it was your responsibility as head of the home, as the man to make the final decision. But there are plenty of examples in scripture that counteract that in which the woman is the wiser one and she needs to be heard. She, she's supposed to be listened to ultimately yeah. you're you know, talking about, Mary, but, you know, Abigail in the David story, Deborah, I mean, over and over and over and over again, their Pilate's wife, when Jesus is about to be killed, Pilate's wife has a dream and she tells Pilate, whatever you do, don't kill this man, have nothing to do with this man, because I've had, I've had a very troubled night recognizing who he is and what's happening with him. So over and over and over and over and over and over again, Women in scripture need to be listened to and are not often. Sometimes they are, but often are not. So this is not some kind of generalization about women shouldn't be listened to. Men should rule the home. This is mm-hmm. much, much more universal in one sense and particular in, at the same time. It's much more about all of us are caught in this story of the serpent and Adam and Eve and mm-hmm. however we relate in our societies, you know, parents to their children, spouses to their to their lovers and so on, like this this dynamic has to be taking shape in us in some way. And again, remember, this is not this is designed to provoke these kinds of discussions. This story is doing what it's supposed to do by you and I having this you and you and me having this discussion. But it's not a discussion that's going to end without us having other questions come up because of the way it's designed. We're going to come back and say, well, I hear what you're saying and I think that's right, but we also have to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to finish up the, yeah, let's finish it up. We, 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 we should start winding down here. The man called his wife, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to to till the ground um, from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim. Cherubim. Um, cherub, fiery angel, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Yep. So notice, and this this is just to my point. Notice, the man has become like one of us, and the man is sent forth. But we're talking in the singular. But of course, both Adam and Eve are the man here. This is why I said earlier, Adam and Eve together make Adam. Humanity is sent forth and humanity is sent forth under the protection and care of God. So the the reason there's a flaming sword barring, guarding the way to the tree of life is precisely so that human beings, male and female, don't get married and unmarried, don't get locked into this dividedness, this enmity. But he, it's clear in the story that the Lord is protecting them from living forever under these conditions. Mm, okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like you, you need to go away from this garden and out there figure out a way of crushing the head of the serpent, integrating in such a way that the husband's rule is one that brings peace and justice and doesn't the husband's rule, not in the marital sense, but like within me, Adam ruling so that my eveness is, is not destroying itself is not bringing destruction in the world. What's interesting to me about that is in that case, death is what you're striving for. Like death is a, mercy in a sense right like it's him but in um if you this is one of i feel like those trap things you're talking about in the end of the poem um for out of it you were taken you are dust and to dust you shall return death is it looks like the punishment there but then also for the snake it says and dust you shall eat so if death is a punishment then it sounds like he's saying to the serpent like you'll eat death like you'll you know yes but if death is a mercy, then the punishment the serpent got was just to eat of what it means to be human, of this merciful moment. Yeah, exactly. Like it's not a it's not really a curse. Exactly. And if we think of the the serpentness in us, and maybe that's sexuality, but it's certainly not reducible to that. If we think of the serpentness in us, what what's going to save it is it being humanized. It becoming less wild and less um, at odds with the other aspects of us. It ha- it has to be integrated in into who we are by being crushed. It has to have a, an authority that crushes it. But the the authority between Adamness and Eveness in me is not one of crushing. That's not the kind of rule that's called for there. It's a rule that is. Yeah is one that is is rooted in desire. It's rooted in affection and care. So it, it's nurturing. And ironically, what we normally think of as a mother with her children, I think is what's being envisioned as the kind of relationship my Eveness is supposed to have to my Adamness, right? Like that, that, that dynamic is at play. So I think it would be a a mistake here to read this as some kind of model for how husbands and wives should relate everywhere. And last thing we'll say for now, because we should stop. We have to stop at some point. Maybe we'll do a series of these, like reading different passages. It's been fun to talk with you about it, but thank you for doing it with me. I, I think Theologically, we have to make the connection to the death of Jesus as the way in which all of this happens, like the ways in which all of this is brought together in the story of Jesus and Mary. I think that's the only way theologically to see, for us as Christians at least, to see how this story kind of comes to its fullness. And what happens there, of course, is that Jesus does crush the enemy, 
he does crush the head of the serpent in the sense that he destroys the works of evil. But he becomes, as he himself says, he becomes the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. So in the story of Moses, when Israel is being snake bitten, Moses is told to make a, a serpent out of brass and hold it up. And when people behold it, they're going to be healed of the poison, of, of the bites. So there's a way in which Jesus does crush the head of the serpent and does away with the evil. But there's another way in which Jesus brings serpentness to bear in a way that's healing. And that he tells his disciples, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. So Jesus has integrated the serpentine in himself in ways that are healing and wise, but are not destructive and are not subverting the will of God. It's not badly curious. It's simply healing. It, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of why, a cleverness to it. But it's a cleverness that's true to Adam and Eve and to God. And Jesus is Eve-like, like on the cross, out of him. He, he is the one from whom all life comes. In his womb, all life is formed. That's John chapter 1. You know, When he's pierced at the cross, out of his side comes water and blood. Out of his, All of us are born from the side of Jesus. He's Adam and he's Eve. And he's the serpent, and he's integrated all of those things in ways that put us right, that, that make life possible. And that's what is being, is being promised here. And notice, last thing I'll say, and I'll give you the last word, is the humans are driven out, but God goes with them. right? Like So God does not drive them out of the garden and stay back in the garden behind the sword. He puts the sword there to keep humans from locking themselves in to their dividedness and their enmity, but then he goes with them into exile. And I think that's a, man, what a beautiful picture. Okay, babe, I love you. Thanks for doing this with me. I'm so happy your presentation went well. Thank you. I love you too. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Yeah, and let's um, just as you stumble on, why don't we just do this? As you stumble on to, it doesn't have to be scripture, but it can be. Any, any things like this, you're like, hey, let's talk about it. I think it'd be fun. It'd be fun to do. That sounds great. All right. Love you, babe. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.